because if anyone said, I get what you do, I know what innovation is, I could say I mainly concentrate on engagement. And so now my current title is Director of Cultural Intelligence. And you know, part of what I like about a title that didn't exist before is no one comes into it with an immediate notion of I know exactly what it is that you're doing, which gives you more freedom, I think, to try new methods and approaches. Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. Hey, hey, welcome back, fellow Rebel Souls. This is the Rebel Souls podcast with your host, Shelly Paxton. That's me. Maybe you call me Queen Rebel Soul. I don't know. Still trying to figure that one out. I know I am part of this amazing community. And if I am helping to draw out what you are rebelling for, and the trails that you are blazing in this world, and the ripples that you are creating, then I don't care what you call me. I'm just happy to be doing it. And I'm happy we're spending this time together and that you found this podcast and you're tuning in. So thank you. I'm really honored to be speaking to you as you are walking, exercising, driving, cooking, what are you, whatever you're doing and wherever I'm joining you, thank you. I know you have lots of choices and I love that you're looking to light your soul up and really get clear on how you can be an even bigger badass in this world to rebel for who you are, what you want and the impact you want to have in the world. And that makes me so happy. So I'm continuing to bring you conversations that are going to inspire you and hopefully light that fire that says, I got to do this. And today's, I wanted to have this conversation with Sam Ford. I'll talk about who he is in just a second, because I believe all of us have a story to tell. Very similar to what we talked with Sally Lou Loveman about. And Sam has a whole different angle on it because Sam is actually at my publisher, Tiller Press, which is an imprint at Simon & Schuster. And Tiller Press is the rebel imprint within this, you know, one of the big five traditional publishing houses completely disrupting the industry. And I'm so fortunate to have, to be a part of what they're doing and to have a story that kind of fell in the crosshairs of some of the cultural intelligence that was coming up for them and the reason I want, wanted to have this conversation with Sam, well, there are many reasons actually. One, because I want all of you to be asking, why not tell my story in whatever form that takes? And the cool thing is in this conversation, Sam draws that out and gives us some guidance and talks through you know, ways that you can do that and steps you can take and what does powerful storytelling look like in the world today and why we do need your voice and we need more meaningful stories circulating in our culture. And the second reason is Sam, in my opinion, 
is the most interesting man in the world. You remember the Dos Equis beer commercials with the most interesting man in the world? Imagine him with a Kentucky accent, a deep, deep rural Kentucky accent and loads of experience in journalism and media and book writing and digital storytelling and now disrupting the publishing industry. It's so, it's fascinating, you guys. I truly believe that he's giving the Dos Equis guy a run for his money. I hope you're saying the same thing by the end of this interview. You'll love the fact, I mean, Sam has been at MIT. He did his grad studies at MIT in comparative media studies and writing. And he talks about theses that he's done about soap operas and and studying the model of soap operas and storytelling and why that's dying, as opposed to the WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, and how that is thriving because they're across all platforms and how they're telling that story and going deep with their audience and creating a community around it. And Sam still does work. He does work with Columbia University around digital journalism. He has led innovation and engagement for Univision Media Company. He's done a lot of consulting work as well in the journalism space. And now he is helping... Tiller Press. He literally was part of the leadership team that created this new model for going to market. And he tells us all about it, what that looks like, what cultural intelligence means, how they are really doing things differently, having getting their finger on the pulse of what is, you know, what are the 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 trends? What's the zeitgeist? What do people want to hear about? And how can they quickly go to market with that? Find the authors, find the content and package it in a really compelling way. And I was so honored to be one of their authors and Solbaticals was one of the the books and kind of the first not the inaugural list, the first 20 books that went out the door in 2019, well, slash 2020, because mine came out in January of 2020. Anyway, you're getting the idea that this is a conversation you don't want to miss because this is a kind of the kind of guy who you can't get enough of. An hour wasn't even a long enough time for us to have a conversation. And yet there are so many incredible nuggets that he talks about from his own experience and then in what they're creating today and offers his advice and encouragement for how we can all do a better job with our storytelling and how we can yeah, be out there sharing our stories in a more vulnerable way. And it just feels like the right time, especially with this group. You guys, we're badasses who are doing things in the world and we need to be talking about those things, sharing so others can connect and we can be the ripples that become the wave. We've talked before in other episodes about the ripples of impact. And I think this is yet another piece of that. Your voice needs to be heard. And so Sam's going to talk about that from a publishing perspective. And you'll love this. I mean, if nothing else, he's just a hoot to listen to for an hour. But he's also a deep well of wisdom in this space. So let's dive into the conversation with Sam Ford. Enjoy, you guys. Before we begin, I want to share an offering from my soul to yours. If you've achieved traditional success only to realize that you're living someone else's dream, then this will start you on a profound journey toward becoming chief soul officer of your own life. 
just like I did. I'm gifting you a free chapter from my book, Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life. It's called Liberating from the Shackles of Should. And if you're ready to, then visit soulbatical.com to download it for free. That's S-O-U-L-B-B-A-T-I-C-A-L.com. Warning, side effects include intense joy and fulfillment. Hello, hello. Welcome back, fellow rebel souls. I'm so excited to jump right into this conversation with Sam Ford. As I described, he is, at least in my view, the most interesting man in the world. He's, he's getting, giving the Dos Equis guy a total run for his money. The first time I met Sam, I was just like fascinated by his background. And we're going to dig into some of that. But first, I just want to say welcome and thanks for agreeing to do this with me. So happy to be here and part of your inaugural set of, of episodes here. So yeah. uh, if you're destined to, to host forums like this, Shelly, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, yay. Well, th- that means a lot coming from you. Like you are, you know, master storytelling expert and you're the guy who got me into publishing as well, which I know we're going to talk about. So thank you for saying that. And I, my goal in wanting to have this conversation, not only because I love talking to you, and as you know, I mean, many of our phone conversations go on for well over an hour and they're just, they're always meaty and juicy and we just enjoy each other's company and always find good stuff to dig into. And I thought that's something that I want to bring my audience because you are so fascinating. Your background is such a unique blend of things in the journalism space, the innovation space, the digital and spreadable media space. And I just think right now is a perfect time to have this conversation. And as I was saying to you off air, I get asked so often about what it's like to get a book deal and to be working with Simon and & Schuster. And the first thing I always say is, I'm so glad that I'm working with Tiller Press, which is the imprint that you help lead and that you're doing some really cool stuff around because it's like the rebel imprint within Simon & Schuster. And I remember the very first conversation we have, I'm like, yeah, the rebel wants to be a part of the rebel imprint. Like, let's disrupt this business. So that's the other thing I want to make sure that we get into as we start our conversation. Absolutely. You know, I think it's if you'd asked me four or five years ago how you get a book deal, I would have, wouldn't have had any idea. So uh, it's been a huge learning curve. So far, I've not worked in the same industry really twice. And that brings some real benefits to it. It also has some real challenges to it as well. So <laughs> That's awesome. So let's do this. I always start with my signature question. So I'm going to ask you, what are you rebelling for? And then let's start to, let's take a giant step back and unpack it for everyone listening and watching. And we'll start to connect the dots of what got you there. <laughs> Absolutely. I think for me, it's rebelling for stories that ought to be circulating in the world that aren't out there yet or that the world needs. And and so much of that, too, involves creating organizations that are listening to the culture that surrounds them. The only way you can spread stories that will resonate with the audiences in new ways or meet underserved audiences is to also be listening to what that what those audiences want. And, you know, in 2020, we have a completely different media landscape than we did even five or 10 years ago. We have a landscape where more people than ever before can distribute 
their stories, but where it is more crowded than ever before and very hard to discover and uncover the stories that matter. So to me, those are really interesting questions to navigate. It's a really unprecedented time to be thinking about these questions because there's so much potential. But there's also, you're competing with not only every other story that's been launched at the same time as yours, but because we have such a long tail accessibility to culture, you're competing with everything that has ever been launched that is still in circulation. The cumulative Uh, impact of all the knowledge, all the stories and all the things, right? It's intimidating. I know as an author, having my first book out in the world, and you keep reminding me, it's the long game, Shelley. We are absolutely playing the long game. And it's such a good reminder. It's like, yeah, this isn't a fleeting moment. And this, I know a lot of what you're putting out with Tiller, these things are, these are lasting evergreen stories. These aren't ephemeral. And, and we have to remind ourselves of that. I know I have to every day. Well, you know, you're used to an old media model where there was very, it was a model of scarcity. So there's only, you know, a few TV channels and they only had a certain amount of slots in their day. Or, you know, the bookstore, there's only, you know, there's a bookstore and they only have so much shelf, shelf space. And when you leave that model, it opens up, I think, a lot of questions of what becomes possible if you don't have a moment of environment of scarcity. You know, I think a lot of fascination with going viral in the digital media world imagines that the goal is how to spread as fast as possible to as many people as possible. But one of the, you know, the counterbalance to that is some of the stuff that spreads the fastest is also the stuff that's the most ephemeral and that doesn't necessarily have lasting impact. So there's a real trade-off. You know, there may be times, and from a strategy perspective, there's a real trade-off. When do you want something to get everywhere as fast as possible Versus when do you want to find the thing that really resonates with people? You know, one of the things I've said is it's like, it's the difference when you're at a, a, a dinner party or you meet somebody new with like, what helps you talk to a stranger? That's the more ephemeral stuff often. Oh, the weather's nice today. Can you believe the, our local sports team lost last night versus the thing that helps you find your best friend? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, there are different strategies for each one of those things, I feel like. But when it comes to creating something that you think you want to resonate really deeply with people, then perhaps longevity becomes the question. Or how do you find the people that when they find that story, they say, I've been looking for this for a long time, you know, and it almost feels like the positive of that sort of experience is when they find it, they almost feel a personal investment in it because not everybody knows about it. When they've discovered it, it feels like a, you know, it's not the Tiger King dropping from Netflix and it's been <laughs> everybody at once and everybody's talking about it. But I was on, a, actually, I was in a meeting the other day and people were talking about nostalgia for early quarantine. Oh. And they were saying, like, our culture moves so fast now that you can talk about what was trending in the pop culture like Tiger King early in the COVID quarantine era. And people are like, oh, remember then? Yeah. Like, yeah. You know. Remember then was three months ago. <laughs> so, so I really think time has sped up in that way. But then you also have those things that are really enduring that people sort of discover in a steady way over time. But they have that resonance that even if you find them five years later, you found them at the moment they spoke to you. Yeah, you found them at the exact time that they needed that and really needed to, or were ready to receive that message. We're ready to make that connection. I feel like that's what Soulbatical is. And you and I have talked about this. Soulbatical only came out January 14th of 2020, two months before the world imploded with the virus. 
And so it's like that six months in some cases feels like six years. I feel like I published this six years ago. And yet I can see that that exact pattern happening as you described it. Like people are connecting with it and finding the book and the message in exactly the right moment on exactly the right platform. And it's a really powerful thing to witness. It just, it takes patience. (laughs) It does. And so one of the metaphors we used in the Spreadable Media book that I co-authored, and it was borrowed from Cory Doctorow, who's a speculative fiction writer, but he talks about, you know, some people treat their stories that they create like mammals do their children. And I think you have talked in the past about your book, Baby. Yeah. And it really feels like that sort of, you put so much into it, right? And it is, in your case, literally was the process of, you know, around, a, you know, a nine month, maybe process, <laughs> kind of follows that trajectory quite quite literally, but you put so much into it and it was such a a labor, uh, metaphorically speaking, that when it comes out, you have such deep investment in it. But, you know, he says that on the flip side, how do you think of your content as well, like a dandelion thinks of its method, which is you have a certain theme, but for you, the book is one aspect of it, but the podcast is also an aspect of it. Everything you do is a manifestation of this larger message of solbatical that you've been working toward. And so, you know, there are all these little bits and pieces of the book and often you, you put all that out there and you don't know which bit of it your audience might discover first. Maybe they find a podcast. Maybe they hear you as a guest on somebody else's show. Maybe they see the book when they're searching something. Maybe they see a short piece that you wrote somewhere, but then there's a chance to dig deeper when they find it. And it's one of the things I've thought about a lot, which is, It can be a really tough enterprise if you imagine the one way people will find your story is to find the the full deep pay, you know, pay real money for it and dedicate, you know, days, if not weeks to going through the full experience. That might not be where people start. And how do you how do you build a strategy around that? So it's been interesting to watch you, Shelley, as you've kind of built out everything you're doing to figure out how do you meet people where they're at? Yeah, and I'm still learning, but I think the lesson for all of us, because, you know, we're all, you know, we're fellow rebel souls, as I said at the beginning, and you and I connected in being that and just thinking differently and, and being disruptors in, in a variety of industries. And then we were brought together and we'll have to tell, we'll tell that story. We'll take a step back in a second. But I'm really learning that just being out there and sharing more and more piece by piece, there's no such thing as too much. And I think some days I was waking up going, oh yeah, I've already talked too much about my book. And it's like, well, it's not really about the book. It's the message and it's all the dimensions and the depth of the message. Keep showing up and sharing that. And I think that's a good reminder for me. And I think for a lot of people who are are listening and, and you know, trying to make their own impact on the world, because that's what this is, this whole community is about. Well, and, you know, you and I've talked about before, I talk with a lot of our authors about this, you know, even as you start to find people who you speak to and they start following you more closely, just in the modern media environment, even the people who are following you closely may see one of every eight things you put out there because it depends on when they log into one platform or another and which message circulates and gets in front of them. So, you know, in an old perspective, when there was a lot less content out there, and if you were in privileged to have the chance to get something out there, you had to, I think, worry about, we don't want to hit people over the head with this. We don't want them to hear too much about it. We don't want them to get sick of hearing about it. 
But you know, that, that that's that's increasingly not a concern because people you don't expect that they've seen everything you've put out unless you're creating Back to Tiger King, something that's eight installments and people are going to binge watch the whole thing. That's a very different scenario than I kind of see these bits and pieces in the, you know, as I go about my day living my life. And I'm, you know, it's kind of like I've studied the soap opera in the past. So it's sort of like the soap opera was built around the idea of instead of a prestige primetime drama where there's 10 episodes a season, a soap opera has 260 episodes a year, and there is no off-season. And so you built in a lot of redundancy where you said, we're not going to suppose that someone tunes in every day because they may be busy some days. So there's got to be a lot of redundancy in the dialogue. So if someone missed four episodes and then they dial back in, you've got to, you know, you've kind of got dialogue where people kind of recap what's been happening on the show by talking about it. I can't believe that Susie's leaving John, you know, and again, uh, you're right. Exactly. And so then people can kind of get caught up. And so they, you know, or I was just hearing Larry Brigman, who's a veteran soaps actor, someone sharing this story the other day, Don Hastings, another actor on the show said, every day on the show, I've been saying the same line. I talked about it Monday or no, maybe it was Scott Bryce, but Scott Bryce said, I've been talking, I said it on Monday. I said it on Tuesday. I said it on Wednesday. Now here it is in the script again on Thursday. And Larry said, well, there's a reason why. And then he made a vacuuming sound and he said, you know, people are busy. They're actually doing housework or whatever else during the day while they're watching the show. We can't suppose that they're just sitting around waiting to hear our latest Mm -hmm. insight. It just sort of drops into their lives where they're at. And I that's think that's a, a very lesson. different way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's a great lesson for us. Okay, so you've you've dropped like lots of your little dandelion seeds. So we've got you were co-author of a book called Spreadable Media. You've done work in understanding kind of the soap opera world. Really, like you have this fascinating storytelling background in journalism, in innovative storytelling, in digital storytelling. And now I can totally see how all these pieces of your career, not being in any two industries twice, has like dropped you exactly where you were meant to be. Like this is a beautiful, you know, design of the universe. So can you take us back and clearly you're not from New York. (laughs) So the accent gives it away. Can you just take us back and, you know, in as brief a way as possible, like summarize some of the experiences led to your way of thinking and what you're now helping to create within Tiller and Simon & Schuster? Yeah, happy to. And uh, yeah, I'm joining you today from Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, you may have heard my, you see my dogs in the background. You may have heard it's not actually a a hound dog, but my dog was barking earlier. So it's just a little house dog. But my grandpa did not have a Coton de Tulier. Uh, (laughs) he He had hunting dogs. But I'm from rural Kentucky originally. And I think I had two major influences in my early years on my notions of storytelling. One was my grandfather, C.W. Ford, who was one of those big fish, tall tale sort of storytellers who was larger than life as a character and known by everybody in town. He and my grandmother had 15 kids and 16 years farm family. And the joke was he was the only man in town that got a new Ford every year, but never traded one in. Yeah. And I love it. (laughs) Absolutely. And he's one of those people, there's always a kernel of truth of what he tells you, but never let the exact facts get in the way of a good yarn and loved, everybody loves sort of just sitting around and listening to him tell a tale of whether it's something that he experienced when he was younger or 
the gossip of what was happening around the family, which he gave a healthy level of exaggeration <laughs> to. The other was my maternal grandmother, my memal Beulah. And Beulah was what is called a society columnist in small town journalism. So the local newspaper, there was only enough news, you know, to have one once a week in a rural county. But you had the kind of countywide news, and then you had whole sections of the paper that were devoted to contributors who were from each little rural town across the county. So 600 square miles, there were a lot of little rural towns. I'm from a town called McHenry, which had 400 people. And she was the McHenry columnist. And so she would tell you who had, was anybody born in McHenry this week? Had anybody passed away? Who's celebrating a birthday or a wedding anniversary? Who had gone on a trip out of town and where did they go? Who from out of town has visited? Or my favorite, who from in town had visited and done something fun with someone else in town that past week? And the key line was always, a good time was had by all. Never, never fact-checked, because I'm sure there was some teenager who was there who was a little bored. But my grandmother had some health problems when I was in middle school and asked me to take over her society column. And so it was me and quite a lot of 60 and 70-year-old women who were writing these society columns in the local paper. But once I got my foot in the door of the paper, I convinced them, my a friend of mine and I, when we were in middle school, wrote a private eye serialized fiction story in the local paper every week. And I remember being at the funeral home and having people come by and say, I wonder what Pal and Curtis are going to do next now that so-and-so has happened. You know, it was quite the thrill to be a published, a published author, you know. At to, such a young age, seriously. Yeah, to, absolutely. To a paper, you know, had a few thousand circulation and, and I ran into my audience uh, out in town. But that led me down the path. I'm a first-generation college student and I became really interested in the notion of writing for a living. Uh, and journalism seemed to be the kind of sure paycheck way of doing that. So I went to J school. But Is I that short for journalism school? Journalism school, absolutely. <laughs> right. And I entered journalism school at the turn of the millennium. And it makes it sound like such a, a momentous event, if I say it that way, doesn't it? But it was the exact time when the digital publishing environment started to take root and the advertising model that supported journalism for so long started to show real distress signs. And so as, as my years in journalism school went along and as I was working more or less full-time for some local papers while I was working my way through school, I became more and more uncertain about whether the journalism industry was the easy sort of have a stable job all the time type of life. So I ended up going to grad school to study that very question. I had done my undergrad honors thesis work on profession, the world of professional wrestling Oh, that's and right. how and why wrestling was thriving. I mean, World Wrestling Entertainment, at the same time that journalism was facing all those challenges, World Wrestling Entertainment had just gone public as a company. And they were, you know, moving into with what I would call a transmedia storytelling strategy into a digital media age where, you know, the feuds would play out online as well as on the TV show and at the live events and the magazine that you could get and it all sort of wrapped together in a compelling way. And so I got really interested in that question of like, what's happening in this moment when all these media formats are starting to converge, where you used to have distinct ways that you read and watched and listened. And, and, and Digital Age says you may have one box where you do all those things. And what happens when they all start to wrap together and there's more ease of access to content through all those distribution channels. So I ended up 
in the well-known humanities at MIT. They actually, Shelley, have some engineering and science programs at MIT. I've heard. I've heard. But we had this notion in the program I was in of applied humanities. How does the sort of humanities work in research manifest itself in ways that aren't just in the classroom? And so I got a ta- the idea was you do your coursework to get your master's degree, but you would also be involved in a research project that had outside the walls of MIT application. So we ended up, a group of us grad students and some of the professors at MIT launched a new research group, and this is very academic-y, called the Convergence Culture Consortium. Or and C- very alliterative. Absolutely. And one of my grad school mentors had just, Henry Jenkins had just published a book called Convergence Culture. And it was about the cultural changes that take place as all these media formats come together. And we partnered with some ad agencies, big media conglomerates, some brands who were all really investing in trying to figure out what does it mean to release stories in this new environment and how do you connect with audiences in in new ways. So I stayed on there actually after I graduated to help run that research group. I did my master's thesis work on the soap opera and why they were all, it was the opposite story of pro wrestling. All the soaps were going off the air in a digital age. And it was, I was really curious why this format that had, had existed since radio, it actually launched out of Chicago mostly in early radio days as a format and literally funded by the soap companies. It was sponsored content from Procter and Gamble and Unilever, you know, Colgate type places. And while, you know, they, they'd made the switch from radio to live television to tape television through the cable era, but then the digital world came along and they were all going off the air. So really set myself up for a career with one foot in academia and one foot in in and around the media industries that started with brand consulting. So B2B and B2C brands, strategic communications through a New York City firm called Peppercom. I spent a couple of years at Univision running an innovation team, and that was mostly parent partnering with different online and cable television or broadcast television brands that they own to try new ways of telling stories, new approaches to telling stories in a digital age, and then left that to do consulting and ended up, on the one hand, continuing to do some academic projects around the future of work, projects around local journalism, returning to that question almost two decades after I'd started in that industry to talk about sustainable new business models for digital journalism, and then at the same time, consulting directly with organizations who were trying to change their approach. And that ranged from public radio to foundations to, in our case, retail is where you and I first met up, working with a retail brand who was trying to rethink their approach to marketing and storytelling. Yeah, and I was sort of their acting CMO, I guess, at the time, and was really trying to flip the script on how they were positioning themselves. And I knew I needed a storytelling expert. And the president of the company said, you need to call this guy, Sam. And I was like, great, I need any help. And I'd kind of re-envisioned the principles for how we were going to market this brand. I remember, I remember sharing that with you in our first call and you wrote me this, this response with all of your kind of relevant experience and ideas for each one of those principles that I had outlined. And I was like, I love this guy. When can you start? And that was the beginning of our, that was what, early 2018, Yep. So that was the beginning. Like so it was like a decade ago. 
Yeah, it just feels like a decade ago for sure. Books have been birthed in between. Book babies have been birthed and lots of stuff has happened. You've lived in many different cities since then. But the so here's what's interesting. Before we get into, you know, basically right after that, you ended up going to Simon and Schuster to create this cultural intelligence division, which ultimately became the backbone for Tiller Press. Before we dive into that and maybe even how our stories converged again around sabbatical being one of the, well, I was like one of the first 20 books that, that Tiller Press published, right? That's an yep. honor. Part of our inaugural set. Yeah, just, part just of the inaugural set. Your inaugural uh, set of podcasts. Totally. See, it all comes full circle. The one thing I want to make sure that we hit on, because so many of us, myself, you know, you, and so many people who are listening to this, whether they're content creators in the corporate world or as entrepreneurs, as activists, activists, movement makers, I mean, that's this kind of rebel soul base. And I don't want to miss the opportunity to say, with all of your experience in digital storytelling and what you just described, like all of the platforms kind of converging, what advice do you have for us? Like, What are a couple few things that you can share that we should all be keeping in mind as we're creating content on a daily basis for our personal brands, for our businesses, for, you know, big companies? What guidance do you have? Yeah, I think there are a few things. One is when I left Univision, Ethan Zuckerman, who's been a longtime colleague of mine, uh, we crossed paths at MIT. He said to me once, you know, if you're trying to decide what you want to do, just figure out something you can do now in that direction and start doing it. And you have to, you know, obviously everybody has their own amount of, of privilege in terms of how far they can go down that path and what you have to do balanced with the reality of how you have to pay the bills today. But his point was, you don't have to do the big thing you're thinking about doing in the future. You just need to do your version of that that can get it out and circulating in the world and take steps in that direction. And so to me, that's the biggest thing is don't wait until you have the perfect idea and you know exactly how you want to do it. Just figure out the little things that you can do. And part of his idea was if you take a few of those little steps, you'll start to make connections and things will start happening. And so I tell people often, also don't decide exactly what it is that you want to do. And for two reasons. One is you will inevitably be disappointed, first of all, if you decide exactly what it is you want to do. And because you'll almost never end up doing exactly that. The second piece of it is if you decide exactly what you want to do, you shut yourself off from the serendipity of what the world might be bringing to you. But the universe might deliver. You know I'm big on that. Absolutely. So if you say, I know the sort of intervention I want to make in the world, and I have an idea of what that might be, but you leave yourself open. You know, I have ended up working with multiple organizations and multiple roles that I never would have imagined doing when I set out. But I found that the sorts of things that I was working on and the mission that I was aligned toward ended up being similar in all those roles I've had over time, even if I hadn't imagined, you know, working in retail or in in books where so much of it is still, you know, it's a physical good that's sold at retail. And that's not the sort of work that I've done in the past. It brings a whole new set of questions to the table. But they're all, if they're still focused on that idea of how do you get really interesting stories and content circulating in new ways that weren't there before, meeting new audiences, and how do you make organizations more responsive to the culture surrounding them, everything I've done has fit into that mission. The third thing is, 
even when you set out to do something specific, uh, you know, I like to say, if it looks exactly like you thought it would when you finished building it, you know, the, how you thought it would at the start when you finished building it and something went way wrong. <laughs> because you have, you have to have your best guess of what you think it should look like, start working on it. But uh, hopefully, you're, it's an iterative learning process and that design continues to evolve as you go along. And I think you want to stay hopefully on mission of what the mission that you started with but your strategy and approach should should probably change significantly as you go along. I love that. Like the notion of staying flexible and agile, you know, as we're in, in, and, and be open to being in constant state of iteration, being open to what the universe might deliver. Because when we take one next step, the next right step, the universe opens doors and portals that we didn't even know were there. So I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. I've always said, I love, I love how you position it. I always say like every badass accomplishment is a series of tiny steps. And all we have to do is take that next tiny step. So set the intention, take a tiny step, get unattached to the outcome and learn and iterate along the way. Is that a good summary of what you said? Yeah, I think so. And another thing I'll, I'll throw in, you know, I'm highly skeptical of ideas. Uh, you know, I've always said if someone tells you that they're an expert, particularly in anything that is culturally related, I would, I would have the healthy skepticism about them from the beginning. When someone says, I know exactly what you should do, then I don't know that they're, that's not the people I want to surround myself with. I want to surround myself with people who are skeptical of their own thought about what we should do. Because who knows, right? If you had set out with a content strategy and knowing exactly what you should do a year ago and weren't ready for that to be significantly disrupted, no one saw a pandemic coming a year ago in terms of exactly how it would play out. So, you know, that culture is unpredictable. You know, life is messy and we have to be prepared for that. And I want people who think of everything they do as a little test and learn. I've called that in the past slow innovation. So instead of the whole go all in, fail fast, that sort of strategy, instead, how do you think of everything as slow incremental innovation of we've got to do what we need to do to keep the lights on and meet our numbers or whatever has to happen this quarter? But we want to keep trying, keep trying little things. We don't bet the whole. We don't bet the whole company. We don't bet the family farm against one big, one big idea. But you just continuously are trying new things, and that means not ever being uh, overly complacent. You know, even when things are at a point of stability, because stability is an illusion. I was talking to somebody the other day about this. Like, even if you know, when you're in a salaried job, as opposed to when you're living the 1099 lifestyle for anybody who's US based if you're not that's the that's the sort of freelancer or independent income tax filing that you have but you know you have that when when you're in that mode you run your own business you know how uncertain the world can be because you have to manage it even if you're in a salary job and someone else is making that decisions for you that that idea that everything's stable is just an illusion. It means you're not the one that's having to deal with the uncertainties yeah. uh, in the moment. So, you know, I think about that often. There's a guy that I've done some work with in the past named Jeff Pundike, and he wrote a Knowledge at Wharton piece called The Untitled Mindset. And um, more about that. And so, you know, as opposed to an entitled mindset, but also as opposed to defining yourself by your title you know, how do you navigate your professional life in a way that does not tie your identity to a role or a particular job you've had? 
instead you think about here are the skills that I bring to the table here, are the experiences that I've had. And the more you think in that way, the more I think it's easier to navigate a world of uncertainty because you're going to get thrown a lot of unpredictable punches along the way. So, you know, I think I alluded to this earlier, but I have never had the same job title twice. And every job title I've had so far, the position I took, no one inhabited it previously. And that is a blessing in some ways. It's really fun to come into a new role and decide what that should look like. So when I went to grad school in comparative media studies and became an analyst with the Convergence Culture Consortium, I remember my high school principal said, basically, I figured every time I think I know what it is you're doing, you confuse me even more. And then when I left that job and took a job as director of customer insights, they were even less certain what it was. And then when I was at Univision, my title was VP of Innovation and Engagement. And I like to tell people I tried to negotiate two vague buzzwords into my title. (laughs) Because if anyone said, I get what you do, I know what innovation is, I could say I mainly concentrate on engagement. And so now my current title is Director of Cultural Intelligence. And You know, part of what I like about a title that didn't exist before is no one comes into it with an immediate notion of I know exactly what it is that you're doing, which gives you more freedom, I think, to try new methods and approaches. In particular, for director of cultural intelligence, what I like about this is it says the importance of my team's function, and we'll get into this in a second. It sounds so James Bond. That's one of the things I've always loved about it. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and what I like about it, it says there's importance of listening to the culture and, and gleaning intelligence, but we're not prioritizing one particular set of data over another. And so it's less about the methods or the tactics of how you listen to culture and more what, are, what combination of things work that help us understand what people are concerned about, what people are interested in, and release stories that match up with and connect to what people are looking for. And I'm not a purist when it comes to, is it quantitative? Is it qualitative? Is it, which research method is it? Is it information you can get from a digital landscape or more surveying people or looking what they're searching for? You know, I think any and all and a combination of those become important. What helps us best uncover stories that will resonate? And that's what's interesting to me. So let's talk about that in the context of Tiller and maybe even using Solbatical as an example, like to bring this to, to make this more practical. Like talk about how you're doing this because this is true disruption in the publishing industry. And I love that it's happening in one of the big five publishing houses within Simon & Schuster. I mean, you guys are completely flipping the model. It's usually like book proposals come inwards. You guys are finding this cultural intelligence, understanding, making decisions, like what categories do you want to play play in? What, you know, what are the cultural themes you want to go after? And then you find the authors and or the content. And so can you just talk a little bit more about how that works? Because I don't think most people know that since Tiller's so new. Yeah. So I think, you know, in our in our case, in the publishing industry, a lot of what ends up being found comes from you know, comes through agents or you know, p- people have in mind a decisive plan to write a book and they start working on it and they get a literary agent. And there's a kind of method or approach to you know, bringing a book to market. And, you know, I think there's a lot of value in that whole ecosystem and the way it works and how it's set up, but it also surfaces some types of stories better than others. And so 
you know, CBS and now Viacom CBS is the parent company of Simon and Schuster. So I found out about this job through some people at CBS who I had known from my Univision days. And I had told them anytime, because he was in recruiting at CBS, I said, anytime something comes along and you know who you're looking for, it'll never be me. <laughs> but if something comes along and it's a little weird, tell me about it. And so Mike called me and said, you know, here's one. And so when I first talked to Simon Schuster, I said, again, like they, you know, if you're, if you know exactly how you want to do this, I can help you find the people with the best skill sets to do it. But if you are embracing how messy that question is and you don't know exactly how you want to do it, then I'm, I'm really intrigued and I'd love to some help. And of course they got me so curious that sudden, you know, suddenly I was on and salaried and spent a couple of years up in New York really getting to know the organization and the teams well because this is an industry that was completely new to me. You know, it was, I really needed to immerse myself in it and how it works. And, and, you know, but our mission, the way I like to put it, is Tiller's mission is, you know, can we surface a, a, a title list, a, a set of products every year, most of which wouldn't exist if we weren't here. Mm. And even when they are something that might have existed if we weren't here, they exist, they come to the market in a way that wouldn't have happened in the way that they do with us. So, you know, really for us, it was my cultural intelligence team that I manage. It's what types of information can we look at that helps us better listen to the culture? How do we understand some of the topics and themes and things that are trending that people are interested in? But at a deeper level, what I would call, the, that's the fast culture trends. This is Grant, Dr. Grant McCracken. He's a cultural anthropologist. He likes to, he writes about fast culture and slow culture. So a fast culture trend is like the meme that's going around right now or something that, you know, may trend over the course of the next year. The slow culture trend are the move toward remote work that we've seen now, of course, blow up, you know, the, the slow sort of evolving interest in the vegan lifestyle might be, you know, it's like you see these things coming, they don't happen all at once. You know that you track it over time. And part of the question is, how do you lean into that? And sometimes it's even more esoteric than that, right? The rise of concern and empathy as a business question has been taking place over the course of the last 15 years, as an example. So as you track some of those trends and start thinking about what are books that sometimes it may be very straightforward. We did a book called Sound Bath in our inaugural set. Sound Bath is a really kind of new and emerging sort of, you know, in the sound therapy sort of space and the sort of wellness practice space. But it's a very discreet thing that is on the rise that you could do a book around. We did a book called The Art of Flaneuring, which is about sort of mindful mindfulness while taking a stroll. And, you know, so sometimes you do a book on a discrete topic. Solbatical is a great example where you say there are these larger themes that people are dealing with in their lives. And are, is there enough content out there currently that kind of speaks to pe this moment people find themselves in more and more often where you thought you knew what your whole life and career trajectory was going to be, but the universe is increasingly disrupting that where, you know, kind of the way the world did work is not necessarily the way the world is working. It certainly isn't the way the world is going to work. And so this felt to me like a really interesting, if we think of all, every one of our books as a little bit, it's let's part, you know, a publisher does not, uh, you know, for the most part, with some exceptions, does not hire people to write books for them the way that a news organization does, where you might hire a freelancer to write an article. 
right? It's a, and likewise, our authors aren't our clients. We're business partners. And so I think about each of these as a little business partnership. You know, who are authors who have a really interesting story to tell? They have a deep desire for their own set of purposes in getting that story out into the world. And on our end, you know, here is a story that we feel needs to be told and could really resonate, not just with where the culture is at this exact day or moment, but instead where it's headed in the future. You know, and, and so what I would hope for is often a lot of books that resonate when they come out, but will just continue resonating more and more as, as time goes on. And so for us, Sobatical was a great example of a, a book that was among our inaugural set for that, for that very reason. And, you know, what we look for, in your case, you had started your, you had started writing about and were doing your coaching business and starting to talk about some of the work you were doing. You and I used to talk about it over cocktails in San Jose, California, many a night on our consulting gigs. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, it was one of those where we thought this is a really compelling story that seems to lean into so many themes that are relevant in the culture right now. Can we get this story out there in a way that, you know, I think you had had thoughts of doing a book in the past, but hadn't you know, hadn't yet been ready to take that leap, didn't know the process for it. And so that's really part of the method that we want to set out. If we're, if we know there's some larger themes that we're interested in, and then we know and see, you know, and and where we started, some of it was, who are people we know that are doing interesting things as that has continued to evolve. It's how do we use different tools and methods to surface people that aren't you know, uh, a contact of a contact of a contact, but just surfaces people that are doing interesting things that we think will resonate and reaching out to them, many of whom weren't planning to do a book to say, we, you know, we're really intrigued by what you're doing and, and how can we partner with you to bring a book to life? And this feels like, I mean, and that, that's so unique, right? You guys are looking outwards. This feels like it ties to the earlier conversation about, you know, us all getting our stories out into the world, piece by piece, bit by bit, because that's what you guys actually find. So for everyone listening and watching, think about the power of telling your story, showing up every day, sharing some aspect of that story. This is the way that publishers like Tiller are going to find us, right? And it was only, the only reason Sam found me, I mean, there was a lot of universe at play, right? I just say this is the best fortune I ever had. I'll never forget the day you called me and said, I know we're supposed to be having breakfast, but there's a little bit more I want to talk about when I was coming to New York. But the point is, I was out in the world talking about Solbatical. I had already had this idea that the vision of it was crystallizing. I knew I was on a bigger mission to liberate a billion souls. I didn't know exactly what that looked like, was going to look like. And I was just open to, you know, again, kind of taking baby step by baby step saying, okay, I'm going to open my doors. I'm going to keep talking about this. Somebody, you know, see who it resonates with. And it resonated with you and came back. I mean, this is the power of being out there as scary as it is, as vulnerable as it feels. Keep putting your story out there because isn't that how you guys are finding your next author, your next book? Absolutely. So, you know, so that's really our goal. Listen to the culture, find themes that we know that we're really interested in. And it's a matchmaking. You know, we're not, there are thousands and thousands of things that are out there that are one way or another trending that are happening in the culture or what we're trying to figure out is what is, a, what is our editorial expertise 
and the sort of the goals and the subject areas that are real focuses for our publisher and our editors, Tiller. And then my team's job is to match that with interesting themes that are rising up, voices around those themes. And voices is not always only, you know, here's somebody who has a massive following. Here's somebody who it's, you know, the, it's the content, the resonance of the story as, as well, who has a compelling story that would be unique in the marketplace that a book in particular as product could help capture. Uh, so a lot of our books are experiments. We're doing partnerships with newsrooms. You know, we're doing a few books this fall that kind of take something that a news organization or a set of news organizations had been doing for a while and says, could you take all that work and, and present it in book form? Because it's often hard to find the work that they'd been doing, you know, three and a half minute radio news stories or a bunch of articles, disparate articles on the website way back in their archive. Not a very good user experience, but you take all that great work and find a, a way to package it that puts it in a discrete volume that people can pick up. That's a lot of what we're, what we're interested in. You know, a lot of our stuff has leaned toward practical nonfiction or kind of memoir with a practical component, which is what I would feel is so, so badical is it draws on your story and experience, but you mean to be very discreet and how people might walk away from it with takeaways. And, you know, when we're also doing stuff, you know, kind of experimental, trying, trying new things. We've done baby name books. We've done books that are sort of quotes around themes. We've done a lot of cookbooks, things that are in the wellness space that kind of meet needs that people have, underserved audiences and communities. We're releasing a book in August aimed at parents with children who have dyslexia and how they navigate the education system. We're doing a book next year, a couple. She has autism spectrum disorder, and he's neurotypical, and how they manage life together and work and their personal relationship with their friendships. So we're looking at a range of books that sort of serve and meet people's needs, but bring kind of compelling stories, you know, not always with first-time authors, but a heavy proportion of our Authors are people who haven't done a book before, which is also a really good feeling for us to figure out how do you help people navigate the publishing process who've not done it before and, you know, some of whom have thought about writing a book, but some of whom haven't. Yeah, it was, as you know, I mean, just one, getting into publishing for the first time. So being a first time author, I was so happy to do it with you guys because I feel like it's a higher touch model. I really totally felt that you said the word partnership earlier. And so I would invite anybody who's thinking about wanting to write a book who's going to be selling a book, who's, you know, in a traditional or non-traditional way, you know, self-publishing, whatever it is, you've got to look for somebody who's going to partner with you in this process. Because even with a strong partner like Sam and his team at Tiller, I felt like I was outrunning a bullet train by an inch last year because it all happened so fast. And I guess that's another part of your model. You guys are quick to market, certainly much faster than a traditional publisher is or would be. Yeah. And that's, that's one of our, our goals as well, which especially if something seems to be resonating in the culture, how do we strike that right balance to get that story out there in a way that kind of meets people with their need, have the right timing while at the same time, making sure it can then resonate over time to our our point earlier. And that's, that's part of what we're interested in and experimenting with. Yeah, as I said to one of our authors, you know, the, the your quote unquote launch is the first week your product's on sale. So we've got to balance how do we get the product out there fast enough 
that we meet that audience who are getting to that point in their life where this book would be relevant to them. If we, sometimes we might want to get that out as fast as possible because we want to start connecting with people who get to that point, but then making sure it's, it's focused in a way that you meet people from there on out when they get to that point. And I think, you know, so we always try to strike that balance of how do you make it relevant at the moment you release it, but it being a book where the product is available from here on out, not making it so timely that it becomes dated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and that, and that's really, you know, that's, that's a balance to strike when, you know, and I think, you know, thinking about anything for your listeners, anything that they create, how do they strike that balance? It's a, yeah. And it's one, I, I mean, do you have any, do you have any advice? Cause I'm just thinking like the number of times I've been asked about my experience, about my journey, writing a book, the number of times I've had somebody come to me and just say, what's the first step I can take? Maybe it's just writing the overview. Maybe it's writing the outline of a book. There's a lot of interest and I'm a big advocate for everyone telling their story in some way, shape or form. Maybe it's not a book, but get out there and tell more of your story. What guidance do you have for for anyone who's thinking about going down this path? Yeah, I think my main guidance is, you know, don't be so guarded over the ideas that you have in your head that you don't take opportunities to share them with people. When we did the Spreadable Media book, which was based on a lot of our research at, while I was at uh, MIT in the research group we ran, you know, by the time that book came out, most of the ideas in it had been shared somewhere at some point along the way. And, you know, so for us, there was a chance for sure, people could have said, I've seen this bit here or this bit there somewhere along the way. But, you know, it was still a superior experience by the time we got to the book to have all those ideas kind of collected in, in, in one place. So I think sometimes people get so sort of caught up in, I want to get the perfect expression of what it is I have to say out there that they miss all mm-hmm. the opportunities along the way to workshop those ideas. Yeah, I love that. And what would you say? I know I had I had this one and you kind of helped talk me, you know, talk me off the ledge. But it's like, so many of us have this voice in our head that says, well, who am I to tell my story? Who am I to write a book? What would you say to that? You know, I think you, you, you obviously want to think about what is it that an audience, you know, I've said this about imposter syndrome in the past, that a little bit of it is healthy that having that sense of humility of I don't want to just presume everyone's interested in my story because my life's been, you know, that's actually a, a positive quality for a person to have. It beats the alternative. But on the flip side, it's understanding why not you? If you have an interesting experience to share, it's not that you're saying you've lived a perfect life. In fact, you're telling people about a very real experience you have. The more candid you are about that, the more open you are about it, the more they learn something that they can apply to themselves. So I feel like there are great opportunities out there for people to go down that path and just be open to sharing their experience with other people. We had an author who's Jackson Bird, who uh, did our book, Sorted. And Jack uh, has said in the past that he wondered, he's pretty young, uh, you know, how can I do a memoir? But his memoir is about his experience as a trans man and growing up and, and, and going through the experiences he's had. And it's not, oh, this is a reflective look at what a great life I've lived. No, it's these are the experiences that I've had. And by telling you about them, whether you're someone going through something similar or someone who hasn't, but you're trying to really understand what life must be like for someone who's gone through that, 
how do you balance it? Yeah, I love what you just said about Jackson Bird and his story in Sorted. It reminds me of something I heard uh, the author Sue Monk Kid say. And actually, as you were as you were talking, I looked it up because I keep it in my phone. She said, "The deeper we go into our own journey, the more likely we are to hit the universal." Oh, I like that. The universal. Isn't that? Yeah. And that's it. Like for me, I'm, I'm discovering the same thing. The, the comments and the, the gratitude and the insights that I get from people who have read Soulbatical and said, I thought it was just me. I thought I was alone. You know, I was kind of going through this in a tortured way by myself. Thank you. And so I think that to me is like, well, who are you not to tell your story? Because you telling your story will connect with so many other souls, and it's that's the power. Uh, yeah, I like I like that, and it yeah you know, reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell on his Revisionist History podcast was talking about country songs or, and you know, country and bluegrass and all those traditions and why they are so known. The signature is the sad song. Why are they so sad? And you know because pop music and so many other forms of music has songs about very sad topics. But one of the things that came out, it's because a lot of the stories in country are so specific that it's not just the pain of losing a loved one or having your partner leave you. No, there's there are details that are included in that song. And suddenly, just in hearing the three minutes you hear that song, you get to know this person and you understand what they're going through. And, and there's something much more universal about that in exploring someone's specific journey that they've had. It's uh, so true. Sam, even the number of people who've come to me, whether it's I'm saying it on a stage or they've read my book and said, I was having a nightmare and I didn't tell anyone about it. And you know, that's where my book starts. And I'm like, wow, I was so, you know, I was almost kind of embarrassed. I'm like, well, this 45-year-old, you know, badass corporate executive, like basically waking up crying every night. And I didn't realize the power of telling that story. So those specifics matter. Going deep into those spaces that are going to feel really vulnerable and uncomfortable, that's what's going to unlock that, that connection. And that's why you should tell your story. Yeah, and it is. Somebody was telling me just the other day, one of my work colleagues, about a meeting that she was in at a different job once. And they said, you know, they're kind of going around saying, can anybody share anything that's on your mind, anything that you're worried about? And she spoke up and just said, well, I worry sometimes that I'm not good at my job. Mm. And suddenly everyone around her kind of expressed the same, a different, some version of that, right? And so you have that sort of moment of clarity where you take your guard down a little bit and you share something that's real about yourself instead of the performance of yourself. Because of course, yeah. we're always performing to some degree, but I always say like, to what degree is the performance that you're giving aligned as best as it can be with the core of who you are? Yeah, with your truth, right? Absolutely. And, and then really interesting things can start to happen. When you do that, and obviously you can't always be in a situation like that, and you aren't always at an organization or in a social setting or with a community where you can do that, but that might you know that might be a sign of trying to find ways to be in in a different community when you can and, and again, easier for some people to do than others, and always focused by the reality of what life's throwing at you at the time and what you have to do to make a living and make your way through the world. But I think that general idea of how can you be with a group of people 
in your friend group, with your family, at work, at home, where you can bring yourself fully to those places. And that is embraced and encouraged. I think it creates more productive environments for doing your work. So it's one of the things we think about at Tiller too. How do we make sure if it's about cultural intelligence, then aren't all of our employees and our business partners and everybody else listening agents with us too, right? Because they've got something to, con- to contribute if, you know, we're all experts in listening to culture in one way or another, and how do we draw on that? And, you know, so then having a team that's interested in an eclectic set of things and who come from a broad range of backgrounds, the more you can bring people like that into your sphere, then the better you can surface really interesting things happening out in the world. I love it. And you guys are gathering such diverse perspectives. It's beautiful. And I think it's uh, this, this whole conversation is such a powerful invitation to all of us to be those brave badasses in the world, telling our stories day after day, going deep, making that connection. And who knows, one day, maybe Tiller will come a knocking. <laughs> We're always looking for really interesting stories. So ab- absolutely. I love it. Okay. So before we sign off, just where can people find out more about you, Sam Ford, and also about Tiller Press? Because you're kind of now the darling of Simon & Schuster. Yeah. I'll let you say that. Not not me. <laughs> but I would say certainly, you know, find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Ford at samford.wordpress.com. Very creative website URL. Not much branding happening there, but it'll give you kind of an idea of what, what I'm up to and what I'm into. And, you know, if you go on Simon & Schuster's site and search for the Tiller Press books, you can see the sorts of things we're publishing currently. You know, we are certainly always on the lookout for great stories and people doing interesting, uh, interesting work. I love it. I hope this kind of lights a fire. You know, this is all about getting us kind of fired up and inspired. And, and so I hope there are, there are at least a handful of beautiful souls listening to this conversation going, okay, I'm going to finally do it. And, and if that happens, I feel like some of my work in the world is done and some of your work in the world is done. I want to inspire more people because we need, we need those stories and everybody's got a unique one to tell. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm proud of the authors that we've been working with and the sorts of stories that we've surfaced. So encourage everybody, whether or not you know a story that you have to tell currently, to check out some of these folks. It's a group of people we've been proud to partner with and products that we've been proud to bring to market. And every, every season we're launching a new batch. So look forward to hopefully somebody finding a great read for them. Yeah. Well, and thank you for your partnership. Thank you for bringing Soulbatical even into the the conversation as the whole leadership team at Tiller Press was formed and for helping me put my first book baby out into the world. It's been an awesome journey and we're nowhere near done. And maybe there will be a number two. Who knows? We'll leave everybody with that cliffhanger. I appreciate it. And thanks to all your listeners for spending some time with us. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, Sam. And to everybody, I hope you're inspired to tell your story in your own way. Get it out there and you'll find this deep, magical connection that I still to this day can have a hard time kind of putting words to, but I think Sam did a great job of, of doing it. So until next time, thank you and bye. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow Rebel Souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at soulbatical.com. 
and follow me at Sylvatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for? Rebelling for.